Friends, join with me in prayer. God Almighty, we give you thanks this day for your word for us, for your scripture and the way that you continue to teach us and to help us to grow. In your son's name we pray, amen. I confess to having very little botanical or horticultural knowledge. Now, my mother studied botany in graduate school, and she always seemed to know things about plants and things that grow. But in all candor, and although perhaps with a lack of charity, I share that my mother has not been much of a cultivator herself of plants. And to be fair, she reminded me that her expertise was in things like fungi and slimes. So it, it makes a little bit of sense, I guess. And, and well, I don't have a green thumb. And maybe I inherited it from my parents. I don't know. In fact, I used to grow a little sad uh, when I would bring plants into my house because I knew that in due time, and in really in short time, the plants simply would not make it. Whether it is a beautiful orchid that comes into my house and then loses its blossoms falling off the stem one at a time until I'm left with a craggly stick. Or a plant I was told couldn't be killed that almost instantly began to turn brown and lose its leaves upon coming into my door. Growing plants, apparently, was not for me. And at some point I accepted this reality and I stopped bringing them home. But two springs ago, I was at Wanamaker's and I was wandering around the greenhouse. I walked up and down the aisles wondering what plants I might take home to their final resting place and I stumbled upon the display of pepper plants. I love jalapeno peppers and serrano peppers and even the beautiful beastly habanero peppers. So I picked up some plants, a few planters, some soil, and I went home and I planted the little pepper plants. I watered the plants. And I think halfway through I anticipated or I accepted that they would just die. I, I halfway expected also that they wouldn't produce anything. The other half of me was cautiously optimistic. I told myself that I could always go to the store and buy new peppers if it didn't work out. The risk of failure was actually quite low. There was nothing riding on the success of my cultivating adventure. And perhaps it was my release of expectations, my surrender of anticipation, and even my preemptive acceptance of my lack of control over the production of the crop. Perhaps it was my low expectations that resulted in my giddy, gleeful surprise at the bumper crop of, pe of peppers. Abundance. Abundance of crunchy hot peppers for salsas and stir fries and grilling and pickling. Perhaps my low expectations or even my surrender to what would be, my willingness to let the plants grow, to, to hold on to hope. And watering a garden, I think, might be the ultimate act of hope. To, to hold on to hope, even in the midst of doubt, perhaps this is what helped me to still look with wonder on the miracle of the garden. This mysterious gift of the soil and the water and the sun. A few years ago, I was walking through the Morton Arboretum. Now, the Arboretum's mission, in case you didn't know this, according to the website, is to collect and study trees, shrubs, and other plants from around the world to display them across in naturally beautiful landscapes for people to study and enjoy, and to learn how to grow them in ways that enhance our environment. 
I found myself walking around looking at trees, trees from Asia, trees from throughout regions of Europe and North and South America, Africa, from all over the world. And in this moment of exploration, I was struck by the way that in our diverse world, in our diverse landscapes, different plants grew and developed, nurtured by people and by the climates and the lands around them. Different plants, and yet brought together in this suburban landscape of the Morton Arboretum, there they were, cultivated and growing, and, and growing and thriving. The Arboretum brings together so many different trees and plants, reflecting their differences, but united in their same purpose of growth. I remember standing under the canopy of my great-grandmother's fig tree in Sacramento, California, on a hot summer day when I was about seven years old. It was well over 100 degrees outside, a dry heat, but uncomfortably hot nonetheless. But under that massive canopy of the huge fig tree, it had to be at least a dozen degrees cooler. And I was amazed at the gift of that canopy. It was a place of safety, a place of respite. We would pick tomatoes from her garden, warm from the sun, sprinkle some salt from a shaker she kept on a fence post outside in the garden. There's nothing quite like a tomato plucked from the vine in Nona's garden. Sublime. What is the kingdom of God like? It's Jesus who asks this question in our gospel lesson this morning. It's Jesus who twice says to those gathered, two times he says, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. Let me tell you, my friends, about the kingdom of God. Let me tell you about what's going on in our lives, in your lives, in the world around you, in the people you meet, in the people you love, in the people you hate and detest. Let me tell you about all of God's creation and what it looks like in the kingdom of God kingdom of God. Let me tell you, Jesus says, and he proceeds to tell two parables, two stories without explanation, stories that leave the listeners with perhaps more questions than answers, perhaps leaving us with more questions than answers about what this kingdom might be, more questions than answers. St. Anselm in the 11th century said that Christian faith sets in motion a journey of seeking God, of seeking understanding. Our lives, he said, are about faith-seeking understanding. And friends, isn't this the greatest invitation? An invitation to a faith that doesn't come with tidy answers, but a faith that Anselm says is seeking understanding. Our journey, then, is one of asking questions, of learning and growing, and so when we hear parables, we use our minds, our experiences, our senses, and we approach the teachings of Jesus trying to understand how we can take, listen, think, and respond to the gospel. How our faith can help us search and seek for understanding. And so Jesus tells these two parables, invitations to seek understanding of the kingdom of God. The first parable is one of mystery. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is as if one would scatter seed on the ground. One scatters the seed and then walks away and waits. He sleeps, rising night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows and the man doesn't know how. 
I wonder if you've ever really looked at this parable or paid much attention to it. It's pretty short. And if you blink, you'll miss what's happening. And often it's, it's, it, it's not given the same amount of attention as the other parables. So in this in this parable, the man then harvests this crop that grew, it would seem, without him doing anything other than that act of scattering. Now, Jesus doesn't stop with this parable, and our understanding of these two parables might be helped when we look at them together. He kept talking to his friends, and as an aside, I need to clarify, we don't necessarily know whether the telling of these parables by Jesus actually happened right at the same time. But the gospel writer Mark has grouped these parables together for a reason. He's intentionally inviting us into the journey of faith-seeking understanding by placing them side by side. Our job is to examine and think about why. And so Jesus, who talked a lot about the kingdom of God, described it in these two ways. Jesus says, with what else can we compare the kingdom of God? Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds. But then it grows to become the greatest of all shrubs with large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, on the one hand, this image of the mustard seed is beautiful and inspiring. From the smallness of that little seed comes this massive shrub. And so often we hear sermons or read about that little seed and how even just a little faith can blossom into something great. And I love this interpretation, and I find some benefit and gift to this understanding of the message in the parable. But I want to offer a very different perspective today. John Dominic Crossan is a historian, particularly in the life of Jesus and the first century culture. Crossan has extensively researched the historical context in which Jesus was living and teaching, and it helps us to look at biblical texts through that lens. In looking at the mustard seed, and more specifically the mustard shrub, this is what Crossan writes in his book entitled Jesus, A Revolutionary Biography. The point of the parable, he writes, is not just that the mustard plant starts as a proverbially small seed and grows into a shrub of three or four feet or even higher. It is that it tends to take over where it is not wanted, that it tends to get out of control, and that it tends to attract birds in cultivated, within cultivated areas where they are not particularly desired. And that, said Jesus, was the kingdom of what the kingdom was like not the mighty cedar of Lebanon and not quite like a common weed, but like a pungent shrub with dangerous takeover qualities, something you would want only in small and carefully controlled doses if you could control it. I love that part. Something you'd want in small and carefully controlled doses if you could control it. When looked at through this historical lens, we begin to see that these two parables placed side by side begin to paint a picture of what God is intending for the world to be under God's reign. What, what God is intending for us to seek when we pray to God, your kingdom come. When we are kingdom seekers, your kingdom come, come with grace, grace like the seed that is scattered and with no work of our own grows through grace, abundant grace, into a harvest, as in our first parable. But also the kingdom of God, 
becomes this out of control, invasive, pungent shrub counter counter to what we might hope to see, hope to see at this arboretum idealized of our faithfulness. Not what we'd envision of any kingdom. John Shea, in his book, To Dare the Our Father, writes that to live the kingdom of God is to be committed to the second half of the following pairs of words or ideas. Listen to these pairs. First and last. Exalted humbled, dominate, serve, revenge, forgive, punishment, mercy, exclusion, inclusion, ignore, help, violence, peace. You see, Shea points out that in the life and teachings of Jesus, we're continually pointed to what he calls these second half characteristics. But then he points out that the first half characteristics are the ones we are more often drawn to. They're deeply seated in our collective cultures. He writes that they are embedded into the people formed by the kingdoms of earth. And so comes our challenge. Our challenge as the church and as individuals to make the deliberate choice as we pray your kingdom come to allow ourselves to become people who are ones who choose to be last and humbled, who choose to serve and forgive and who exhibit mercy and inclusion and people who help and who seek peace. You see, this weed of God's kingdom, this pungent shrub, it then does spread and infiltrate, and it upsets the established expected kingdom of the people, the the established kingdom of our lives, and we come then to expect to be upset. In these two parables, the kingdom of God The two parables of PCWS, the two parables of your home and your family and your calling on your life, these two parables invite us to follow a God of surprises, a God who sprouts wheat when all we do is scatter, who shoots forth a bumper crop of peppers when we've all but given up hope, the God who takes our brown thumb and says, don't worry, I've got it, a God who invites us to be part of the harvest, God's harvest, God's bounty in our world, but also the kingdom of PCWS and the kingdom of your home and your family and your calling that is ready to infiltrate and infect your life with a desire to stand up to the dominant kingdoms that have shaped our understanding of winners and losers and our assignment of value on people and our treatment of our neighbors. And friends, in God's kingdom, in our church and in your family and in your life and in your calling, in all of this, God desires to bring a transformation that looks so very different, a place that brings shelter from the oppressive heat and a place like Nona's garden, a place that springs forth and feeds those who have need and a place like the Arboretum, celebrating, preserving, cultivating the various gifts and different heritage and identities of all of God's creation. The kingdom of God, when it grows, When it grows in your life and when it grows in the church and when it grows in the community, in your heart, in your life and the way you live, the kingdom of God will be messy, beautiful, life-changing, grace-filled, bountiful, 
shelter giving, stomach filling, table turning, death denying, life affirming, resurrection reflecting, and it will be uncontrolled, gloriously uncontrolled. And may it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.